0: Well, Recently, people were rocked by the news that Robin Williams took his life. People have openly wondered in the news, how could a man that seemed to have it all be dealing with the deep depression that he did? According to a study done by the World Health Organization and Harvard Medical School, America may very well be the saddest nation in the world. Researchers found that 9.6% of Americans suffer from depression and bipolar disorder. It is the highest among the 14 major nations that were polled. The nations that scored higher than the U.S. were those that were suffering from war, vast unemployment, and profound poverty. In his Wall Street Journal article, The Great Depression, Brett Stevens argues that perhaps America scores poorly as a nation because its population is generally comfortable and wealthy. Such luxuries allow us that much more time for critically picking apart life and its situations and personal circumstances. Those who live in countries torn apart by varying social and economic issues have less time to fret over personal gain and ambition. They simply are trying to survive. In Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, uh, Peggy Noonan, who is a Christian commentator, says, I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. We have somehow lost the sense of mystery about us, our purpose, and the meaning and our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood that this is the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are the first generation of man that actually expects to find happiness here on earth, and our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason is if you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the material world around you, if you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, if that's what you believe, then you are more than disappointed when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches, and you find yourself in despair. As we've been going through the book of James, we've seen how God used James to write to those who were suffering persecution. You'll recall that they were Jewish believers who were being scattered in the first century by the persecution taking place. And what God used James to tell them then and us today is how we can have joy in the midst of the junk we're facing. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 1, where we're going to be picking up today in verses 9 through 11, where we left off last time. James 1, 9 through 11 tells us, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. You know, the truth is that trials affect everybody, even those in the world that we would say are wealthy. Now, some may think that the rich and powerful are shielded from the problems of life. Others may say, well, at least they have a cushion to blunt the fall. But what we see here is that whatever power and wealth can offer us will one day fall short. I've had the opportunity to sit with a lot of rich and powerful people in my lifetime. Some are movie stars that you would recognize. Others are sports stars that you would know the names of. It's been industries and leaders, uh, leaders who are uh, CEOs, owners, and high up in industry, and even leaders of nations. I'm not going to name drop them today, but what I want you to understand is that when the bottom drops out for them, They're just like the rest of us. And what I found is it's not just when hard things happen. Sometimes the biggest questions for them come in the best of times. I've sat with those who have everything the world could offer. And they've looked me square in the eye and said, Roger, is this all there is? What is the real meaning to life? Is Is this what it's all about? You know, in the previous passage in James, we talked about the wisdom that God gives to those who ask for it. And in those times when the questions or trials of life come, we need God's wisdom. We, we need to know that even if the world seems to be ending, we can know that we're going to be okay. And that's what James is talking about today. You know, the worst thing that can happen in the minds of most people is that we're going to die. But for the believer, that's just the beginning. Paul, as he looked at his own impending death, said in, first, in, in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as we're reading through the book of James, what he's writing about here, he's talking to those who are believers. He calls them brothers. So he's talking to those who should have this long-term perspective, understanding that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as James is writing here to those who are brothers, some question whether those referred to here in verse 10 are also Christians as he talks about the rich. But the way that the Greek text, the sentence is constructed here, this uh, address to a brother is also constructed so that it allows it to refer to the rich person as well. If you take it to be a non-believer that's in view here, the text tells us the only thing that he will have when this life is over will be condemnation in the final judgment. And if it is a Christian that's being talked about here, they're to have that same long view as the person of of humbler means has, where we see the things of this world are fading, and as we look to our future home in heaven. One commentator named Linsky says, As the poor brother forgets all of his earthly poverty, so the rich brother is to forget all of his earthly riches. By faith in Christ, both are equal. You know, there's a popular saying, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And what that simply means is that whether you are rich or poor, whether you are powerful or or somebody without what you would consider worldly influence, we all come to Christ the same way. We all come with nothing to offer, first of all. Romans 3.10 tells us, there is none righteous, no, not one. And what it also means is that we all come with the same level of humble dependence on the great mercy and grace of God. And God will freely give it to those who ask. As we come in humble dependence, what we see here is that God gives us the glory of a new position that we can exalt or boast about. Now, normally we think of boasting as a bad thing. And it is if we think of it in terms of uh, self-righteously puffing yourself up or rubbing somebody else's nose in something. But that's not how James is speaking of it here. This is not an inappropriate expression of pride or an inflated sense of self-righteousness. Rather, James says, for those who are believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to rejoice or glorify in God's new position he's given to us. In the Old Testament passage of Jeremiah 9.23 and following, it tells us, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Nor let a rich man boast of his riches but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me that i am the lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on earth for i delight in these things declares the lord you see what james wants us to do here as his readers is to reset our thinking you recall that in james 1:1 1, 1, he was writing to these believers who had been scattered who were part of the diaspora, the persecution. It's much like what we see happening in the news today where uh, these radical Islamic individuals have come through whole areas and pushed people out of their cities or communities or homes. They're fleeing to the mountains with literally nothing. And these were the Jews who had come to Christ in the first century. These were the believers who suddenly were leaving their homes. They were losing their positions in society. They were losing all of their worldly wealth. They literally, according to the world standard, had hit rock bottom. They were scraping the bottom of the barrel. They had nothing. And in terms of their value, what God uses James to tell them and us today is that the true measure of our worth is not in what we have. It is in whose that we are. Children of God. Sons and daughters adopted into the family of God. It is not what you have, but whose you are that defines your worth. We are not to take pride in our possessions, uh, but instead in our position in Jesus Christ. Your net worth is not defined by your bank balance. If you really want to know what you are worth today, then look at the cross. Your true value is not found in your checkbook. It's found at the cross. It's found in what God thought you and I were worth Worth enough to send his only begotten Son to come to earth to suffer a horrible death, to die in my place and yours, to pay that penalty of death we owed for our sins. That's what God said you were worth. That is what defines your value. That is how uh, worth, uh, that is the worth that God defines and assigns to you and I. In Ephesians 2 1 through 7, we're told about our value. And what defines it? It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now look at Ephesians 2, 4 and following. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, apart from Christ, we were dead in our sins. We were lost and hopeless. But as believers, as believers, we've been brought into the family of God. We have been made heirs of the kingdom. We have been given eternal riches. That is our position. It's not defined by our possessions here on earth. It is defined by our future position in heaven where we are heirs to the eternal riches of God. Now, as we're talking about our future heavenly riches, many times we say, well, that's great, Roger, but I've got to get from here to there. And, you know, right now where I'm living, things are tough. I know that there are varying degrees of wealth, but let me help you reset your thinking for a moment. Let me define what rich really is. In the world, there are approximately 7.1 billion people, give or take a few people. And of those 7.1 billion people, over 3 billion people live on less than two American dollars a day. 3 billion people in the world on less than two dollars a day. 1.3 billion of them live on less than one dollar a day. Now, if you're not feeling very rich at the moment, let me share some additional statistics. The World Banking Organization says if you have money in the bank, money in your purse or wallet, and spare change lying around your house, you are among the richest 8% of the world's population. you have any loose coins laying around in your car? Well, guess what? If you even own a car, clunkers included, that places you in the top 7% of the world's wealthy. Now, maybe you're saying, well, Roger, I don't have a car, do you have a computer? And you're thinking, well, how many? (laughs) If you own a single computer, you are in the top 7% of the world's wealthy. Now, if you're still not feeling very rich, I want you to look at this slide and tell me where you rank in household income. If you make $20,000 a year as a combined household income, you are in the top 11.16% of the world's wealthy. $30,000 30000 a year makes you in the top 7.16%. 40000 puts you in the top 3%. If your combined household income is $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthy, 0.98%. Sixty thousand point nine one percent, seventy thousand point eighty five percent, one hundred thousand dollars a year in combined income for your household puts you in the top 066 percent of the world. And if you're in the hundred and fifty thousand dollar income bracket, you are in the top 033 percent, top third of one percent of the world's wealthy. And some of you may even be higher than those statistics. In First Timothy 6.8, we're told, if we have food and covering with these, we should be content. Everybody that I can see is clothed this morning. I believe you've all come from somewhere that you're living, and you've had food this morning. First Timothy 6.8 says, that is all we need. That is all we've been promised in the world. Yes, there are varying degrees of wealth, but all of us are rich. Now, if I just got through telling you that it's our position and not our possessions that define our wealth, why am I even talking about the world's wealth? The reason is because God has given us what we have for a reason, which is that those things are to be used for his purposes and his glory. As James is writing to those who are scattered and in some cases shivering in the cold and starving, he will say a little later in this letter in James 2:15 through 16, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In 1st Timothy 6:17 through 19, Listen to these instructions. This is Paul telling Timothy, uh, a young pastor. So this is a direct uh, call from me as a pastor to talk to you as God's people. It says in 1 Timothy 6.17, instruct those who are rich. Who are rich? All of us are rich. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." As we read about storing up our treasures in heaven, many of you can quote Matthew six twenty through 21. It tells us, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor, nor where thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. You see, what James is telling us today is the stuff of this world is here today and it's gone tomorrow. And he says, what are you doing with what I've given to you, your time, your talents, your treasures, in the time that you have here on this earth? Fame will fade, social prominence will pass away, and wealth will wither. James uses the picture of a wild flower in the field that withers. Does anybody's yard look like mine where it's crunchy when you walk on it? It's the truth of God's word being brought to life. You know, the news is full of pictures of how quickly the things of the world pass away, whether it's through the looting and the fires in Ferguson, businesses, places that were suddenly wiped out in a night of rampage that was happening. It's happening in the Midwest where they have floods that are wiping out areas. Did you see the news where the earthquakes hit California? California. And there were businesses and multi-million dollar mansions that in one instance were there, and the next instant the fire department said, these places are condemned, they're uninhabitable. They've fallen down. They're no longer safe. They're to be wrecked and and razed to the ground. And just a few weeks before that, there were wildfires that were wiping out whole gated communities, multi-million dollar mansions that were simply left as piles of ashes. You know, if you were sitting in your home... This afternoon, and suddenly somebody's banging on your door and they're yelling, You've got to get out. There's a fire coming. There's a fire coming down the street. You have less than 10 minutes to grab your stuff and get out of your house. What would you immediately start grabbing? If you and your family were in the living room and you said, Okay, we have 10 minutes to gather whatever we can, what would you start grabbing? I mean, your homes are filled, your apartments are filled with stuff you've been collecting your whole life. And if in the moment it was a choice between saving your life or the stuff that you've been gathering up, what would you grab? What would last? What would you be willing to walk away from and and just let it burn? Friends, may I tell you something? There is a day coming where it's all going to burn. There is a day coming where everything that we have spent our life accumulating will be left behind and will be wiped out. There are only two things that last for all eternity. The Word of God and the eternal souls of men and women. Those are the only two things that will last. So as you look at your life today and what you are gathering the Bible tells us that in the end, it, we're going to leave it all behind. Psalms uh, forty-nine, sixteen through 17 tells us this. Do not be overawed when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. It's, it's seen in the story of two friends that were attending a funeral, this was a, a very affluent man who had died and as these two men were walking out of the church. The one guy said to the other, he said, Wow, what a story. This this guy died a multimillionaire. And the other friend looked at him and he said, No, he didn't die a multimillionaire. He said, what are you talking about? We just heard his life story, how he began with with pennies and and how he became this tycoon. And and the other friend said, no, he he may have made millions in his life, but when he died, he left this world just like everybody else with nothing. We find that truth in Ecclesiastes 5.15 where we're told, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You know, of the countless funerals that I've done, I've never once seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Have you? Now, if that's true, if we can't take it with us, then why did I title my sermon, You Can Take It With You? The reason I titled it that way is because while we leave all the worldly things behind, there is a way to send something ahead. And it's not our titles, our positions, it's not our portfolios, rather it's people. And it's the Word of God that lasts for all eternity. So as you look at your life and what you are investing in, you know, so many of us pursue the latest, greatest gadgets, tech, toys, all these things. We we compare and grade ourselves on whether what we have is better than what somebody else has. Do they have more or bigger this or a later version of that? But when it comes down to it, the only thing that lasts are people and the Word of God. So what you need to ask yourself this morning is, what are you investing in? Are you investing in the things that will last? Investing in the things you can send ahead? You see, the the true owner of everything is God. We are simply the managers. We don't own anything. We are merely the managers. So ask yourself if you're being a good steward with the time, the talents, and the treasure. That God has given to you? A good place you can begin to answer that question is to look at your calendar or your checkbook, because where you spend your time and your money will show what is really most important to you. You can verbalize things, but your calendar and your checkbook will show what is really important. When we put God in His proper place, when we give Him the throne of our life, and when we give Him the first fruits of everything and not what's simply left, we will be on our way to having uh, the perspective that James is calling us to. James 1 12 tells us, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The word blessed here is the word you find in the Beatitudes. The word is a Greek word, Makarios, and it's translated as happy or fortunate. One commentator says, it implies a congratulatory element as recognizing the desirability of what the person becomes and inner quality of life and perspective. And if that's confusing to you, just remember the first sermon in this series, how James told us that we are to have joy as a controlling element in our life. And that's what it's saying. It's saying when we allow God to be the one who controls us and when we reset our thinking and things are oriented toward God's view and not the world's view, then we will be blessed. We will have joy even in the midst of the junk. As you think about uh, this idea that James says, he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Notice it doesn't say the one who escapes the trials. If you were here for one of the earlier messages, you remember this Greek word we looked at. It's hupomone. And it's translated as patience, fortitude, steadfastness, endurance, or perseverance. And you remember it's this compound word hupo under and minnow to remain. It's this idea of where we remain or abide under a load. And the picture we saw was like a weightlifter who endures the painful workouts of lifting weights, which then produce the muscles. It's like the athlete who puts in the time in the gym, who, who puts in the long workouts and the pain that goes toward it in order to raise their level of performance as they increase their endurance. This week I had lunch with a man who uh, was telling me about his children his high school kids. And, uh, he said, you know, it's, it's been amazing to watch my kids as they've gotten involved in these extracurricular activities at school. He, he said of his daughter, one day he was driving her to school and it was, she, she has to be at school very early. And she through through bleary eyes, looked out the window and said, daddy, I've never seen the stars on the way to school before. And he said, here was my uh, daughter willing to get up early to go through the workouts in order to have a place on the volleyball team. And his son is a part of the marching band. And he said, you know, he comes home exhausted after 12-hour days. But he and the others are willing to put in the workouts so that as the football season begins, that, that the, the band will perform well during the halftime. Here are kids that are willing to put in the work for the price. Many of us here do the same thing. We, we put in the time, the energy, the effort to get a promotion at work or to acquire something else we want. And all of those things, brothers and sisters, are going to pass away one day. And yet we're willing to focus on that. And what James says to us is... We as Christians are to focus on the greater prize, something that will not pass away, to put in the same effort, the same work that God calls us to do, to be those who remain and abide under, to go through the process in order to have the prize that God offers. As we do this, as God takes us through the process that's talked about here, uh, you'll remember in James 1-2, we looked at how precious metals are refined. And how they go through the fire and the dross is burned away. And and the genuineness of the metal is is brought out, the purity of it. And this is what is being talked about here in verse 12. The same Greek word, dokomas, that described that refining process is used here when it says that we have been proved. When it says, blessed is the man who has, it says, when he has uh, stood the test, This is a word stood the test. The Greek is an aorist participle, which literally means having been proven. So he's speaking of a believer in Christ who is a true believer. And he says, once you have been approved, once your life has been refined and shown these things, there is a prize for you. What is the prize? He says, there is a bestowal of the crown of life. Now notice that is still future. It says he will receive this crown. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, we're told, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Greek word for crown here is stephanos, and it was used to describe the victor's crown. Remember, we're reading a Greek text And the Olympics are something that were called the Greek games. If you remember back in 2004, when the Olympics were back in Greece, when a person would win an event, they were given a Stephanos. Here you see the the women's soccer team on the gold medal platform. And you see those wreaths that are put on their head? Those are the Stephanos. The athlete in the early Greek games was given a perishable crown. The glory was fading. It would pass away. But what James says is the crown that we are given is eternal. It will not fade away. James, as he's talking about what God has for us, um, the Olympic medal stand that you see them standing on is called the bema. The Greek word is actually bema. And in uh, the Bible, we find this Greek word, Bamatos. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.10, where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bamatos, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In the Olympics, when you stand on the medal stand, it's not a judgment for bad things. It is a judgment for rewards. Those who have performed at the highest level receive the gold. Secondarily is the silver and then the bronze. Nobody uh, who lost the race is there. And so when we as believers stand on the judgment stand, this is not the great white throne judgment that we find in Revelation 20. That is the judgment for non-believers. And there is only one thing that happens there. Those individuals were the ones who rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it says God will reject them, and all of them will go to the lake of fire, what we call hell. As Christians, we do not stand before the great white throne judgment. But we do go before the beam of judgment seat of Christ. You see it mentioned in the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, and a reference in Luke fourteen fourteen. And as we stand on the metal stand, this is what 1 Corinthians three ten through 15 tells us. <clears throat> it tells us of this coming judgment. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. So this is speaking of our life once we've come to Christ and what we're doing with it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You see the foundation of our faith? Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those are the lasting things. Now, wood, hay, straw, and the refining fire, those things will burn away. Each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. You see, the foundation of our faith or what saves us is when we accept Jesus' death on the cross. That payment for the penalty of sin. Those who are at the great white throne judgment have rejected his payment. So God says, you have to pay the second death yourself. For those of us who receive that great gift of new life, the ticket home to heaven will not be lost. Do you see that? If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Speaking of rewards. But he himself will be saved Yet it's through fire. You don't lose the gift of eternal life. Now you can lose the rewards. If your life has been spent on selfish pursuits, if your life has been used for your pleasures and not God's purposes, that's wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire, the refiner's fire uh, torches it, that stuff is gone. But the things of lasting value, those are purified, those are refined. They are turned into the gold medal, the silver medal, the uh, bronze medal. And what God will say to you is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And you are given these rewards. Now, the rewards in heaven are not uh, Olympic-type medals. Instead, they're crown rewards. James tells us here that he speaks of the crown of life. As you look in the Bible, you will find these different believers' crowns. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, there's something called the imperishable crown. And this is given to those who have led a disciplined life. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 speaks of a crown of rejoicing. And this is for evangelism and discipleship. As you take part in doing God's work, these are rewards you are building up and storing up in heaven. Second Timothy 4.8 speaks of the crown of righteousness. This is for loving the Lord's appearing. James 1.12, the passage we're looking at today, and again in Revelation 2.10, we find the crown of life mentioned for enduring these trials. And then 1 Peter 5.4 speaks of a crown of glory. And this is for those who have shepherded God's flock faithfully, leaders in a church lay ministers, pastoral ministers, elders, deacons, deaconesses, the type of individuals who have served at a different level in the church, there's a special reward uh, for them as well. Now, when we get these rewards, it's not so that we can walk around and say, hey, I've got more bling than you. I mean, heaven is not a place where we're going to walk around and say, my crown's bigger than yours. A little boy was asked in a Sunday school class, who gets the biggest crown? And being a a sweet little boy, he said, ma'am, it's the one with the biggest head. (laughs) It's not the biggest head, friends. It's who has the biggest heart. Who has lived their life? Who has served their life for God? And these slides are all on our website. So if you're trying to fervently write these things down, uh, you can just go to the sermon section and you'll find all the slides I always put up. So as you think in terms of your life, the rewards that we have, the crowns that are given to us are those that we will in turn give back to God and worship. Listen to what uh, Revelation four ten through 11 tells us. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power. These are things we return to the Lord in worship. Now, as we talk about the throne surrounding the throne of God, that's another reward in heaven. It's called the reward of proximity. It's the difference between having floor seats and the nosebleed seats in in an arena. And those who have been faithful and sacrificial will have closer proximity to the throne of God you can read in Matthew twenty twenty where there was an argument among the disciples about who would be given the places of honor closest to Christ. And Jesus said those would be reserved for those who were faithful and sacrificial servants. There will also be the reward of responsibilities. You find that in Matthew 25 and Luke 19. In the parables there that talk about whoever has been faithful in a little here on earth will be given additional responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. I wish we had more time to talk about the various rewards. But what I want you to ask yourself this morning is, with the time that you do have on this earth, how are you investing it? Are you investing it in the things that will last? Or are you living your life for yourself? Randy Alcorn wrote a book called The Treasure Treasure Principle. And he uses this illustration. He says, imagine you are alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you were a Northerner, planning to move home after the war is over. Now, while in the South, you've accumulated a lot of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart... You will keep only enough Confederate currency to meet the short-term needs and you will cash in the rest of your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value when the war is over. You see, friends, as Christians, we know that the end is imminent. And we know all the stuff of the world, whether it's possessions or gold or U.S. dollars, or you, you figure out what you're, pa- you're packing your portfolio full of. That's like confederate currency that in a short time is going to be worthless. And you have to ask yourself, are you going to continue to stockpile it? Are you going to continue to hoard it and pile it up, knowing that in a short time it's going to be worthless? You see, we have been given the ultimate insider tip from Jesus Christ, the one who knows that he is coming back for us, the one who has said our time here on earth is is just a brief moment like the flowers of the field that are here today and wither away and are gone. And he says, are you going to stockpile and store up your earthly treasures like a big pile of confederate currency that's going to be worthless one day? Are you going to follow his insider tip where he says the market crash is coming And where he tells us in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You see, God has given us a place to put our treasure where it will not only be safe, but where it will have out of this world returns. And you have a choice. Will you invest it in the place that will count for all eternity? Friends, you can take it with you. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word and the timeliness of it that reminds us that in a world that is spinning out of control, as we see all of the things on the news, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to wonder where are you and what is happening. And yet, Father, you reveal to us in your word all of these things. You even tell us there in Revelation how the martyrs are gathering under your throne there in heaven, and they're crying out to you saying, God, how long? How long will you let this happen? Why have you not yet avenged our death? And and you tell us there in your word that you give them robes and you tell them to be patient, that the time is not yet complete, the number is not yet full. Father, we don't always understand you or your purposes. But we do know that you loved us. We do know that you came for us. We do know that you have an eternal plan. And, Lord, this world is not out of control. Your hand is on the, the dial. You're watching the clock. You've got control of what is happening. And there is a day coming when, when your wrath, your righteousness will be poured out. Again, Revelation tells us of those golden bowls where the prayers of the righteous The prayers for justice all throughout the ages will be poured out upon the earth. Lord, nothing is lost. The only reason you've delayed is because of your mercy and great grace. You tell us in your word you desire that none should perish, but that all should come to know you. And God, you are being patient, allowing more and more the opportunity to come to know you so they don't have to go through that terrible time of the tribulation to come. May we, Lord, who are your hands and feet, your messengers, the ones who are the managers, the stewards of the stuff you've given to us, may we be faithful to be about your work and your purposes until you call us home. So, Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the message that it has for us today to help us to reset and reorient our thinking. May we be those who are doers of the word and not simply hearers. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.